Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey guys, welcome back to the Angels Podcast. I'm Adam Riggs. Let's get back into part two of the Phil Garner interview. The end of your career, how did you know it was, it was time to, to hang well, out? Well, in my particular case, I was in a lot of pain. I, my mm-hmm. back was, was killing me. I had an old trainer, Doc Ewell, down here in Houston that would, I'd get to the ballpark and I was really sore and hurting and I really couldn't bend over to catch the ground ball. And he would take a, like a, a small broom handle and knead the, in my lower back and just get in really deep. I guess you would call it a deep tissue massage these days. So yeah, much, really deep tissue massage. And then I'd take a bunch of Advil, and in and those days there were things like Budazoladine and Endosin, and I'd take those things. I'd get through the game. I'd, I could go for about four hours. And if we had an extra inning game, boy, I'd start to nod up. And then by the time I'd drive home and get out of the car, I was stiff again. It was no fun. It, was, yeah. it just got to be no fun. And so that's yeah. what – and I realized any one at bat, I may be able to compete a little bit. I'd lost power, but I could put the ball in play. But it just – trying to get ready to play the game was no fun anymore. Yeah. No, too I much, understand. Too much work. I understand. So you retire in 1990. 1992, you're hired as the manager of the Milwaukee Brewers. What happened in between 1990 and 92? What were you doing? Well, I, I actually I finished my career in San Francisco, and, and that was I had back surgery, and so I was I was done. I knew I was going back. I was offered the the managerial job for the AAA San Francisco Giant in Phoenix. The team, That's a good the, the, actually, the the park they played in was where the Oakland A's play their spring training games now. And that was actually Phoenix proper. So all of all of the, the Giants spring training, they had their spring training out there. They had mm. they spring trained in Scottsdale, but they played in the in the in the municipal stadium uh, okay. in Phoenix, and that's okay. where the AAA team was. Great gig. And I, I approached my family, my two boys and a, a girl. They were in high school at Kingwood here at the time in Kingwood, Texas, and asked them if they like to go to Phoenix for the summer. I thought this would be a great idea. They're going to love this. And they all <laughs> voted it down. So I turned the job down. Oh, so, wow. Uh, so uh, no sooner than I turned it down, Art Howe was the manager for the Astros, and they offered me a coaching position with the Astros. And so I, I took that. You went right to the big leagues yeah, as a coach? To, yeah, right to the big leagues as a coach. And I'm glad you're uh, – Glad your kids were a little smarter than you were. Yeah, they were smarter. You know, yeah, I didn't know that was coming. And so I coached there for three years. Was a base running coach, infield coach, and, and, and on the lines for three years. And then got the opportunity with Milwaukee. Did you know Art Howe before then? We played together briefly, oh, yes. okay. And so I, I had known uh, Art. It was a good relationship. We played against each other and played together. We were good friends. So you uh, you get your first managerial job. Was that was it difficult? Was it, a, was it a difficult transition to be? Now you're the guy. You know everybody's looking to you. You're setting you're setting the tone for the organization, and it's got to be a difficult transition. I would think it, it, it was, and, and I wanted to move that way. I, I actually didn't think I was ready. Sal Bando was the manager at, or the general manager at Milwaukee. And he called me in the interview, and I said, Sal, I don't know. If I want to do this, he come up and interview. So I went up and interviewed with him, and actually, I didn't think I was ready, uh, you know, to, to take over a club at the time. And actually, uh, he they offered me a contract, and I said, Sal, I really, uh, I think you ought to talk to Matt Delaney, who was our third base coach at, at the time. I said, I think he would, would do a better job. And I, I, I was totally honest. I just didn't feel like I was ready. I thought Matt would have been a better manager at the time than me. And 
they offered me more money, so he came back. And it, it, they kind of took it as I was trying to negotiate more money, and I wasn't. I really wasn't. I, I was honestly trying to say that Matt's probably better prepared for this than I am right now. And so he threw more money at me, and I couldn't turn it down. I said, okay, I'll take it. Then I panicked. I just absolutely oh, yeah. I panicked. I yeah. tell my wife every night. I was a wreck. I said, honey, I don't know what to do. i got to run spring training. I'm, I've only worked at spring training a little bit. I yeah. have to run spring training. Oh, yeah. I gotta, and so it was a crash course on, on what to do. So I got on the phone, talked to a lot of people, and yeah. and made a good hire as a, as a bench coach and said, you're in charge of spring training. You're the guy. Oh, that's who was that? Who was your bench coach? Uh, uh, Tim Foley. And Tim was a, was, was a good guy to uh-huh. do that with because he was very anal. So, oh yeah, you need and, you need those guys that are yeah, uh, you, you know yeah, anal like or, that or, or better at things where I'm weaker and, and I yeah, did do yeah, it. Yeah. Which I didn't I didn't mind facing my weaknesses and trying to hire guys that were better than me in those areas. And Tim was much better than me at, at doing the details. And so I go to spring training and, and really you know every game is a mess and because I'm, I'm you know ten thousand things are running through. It happens mind. fast, doesn't do it? This? It happens and fast. Baseball is slow moving until it isn't, and all yeah, of a sudden yeah. it speeds up. And Everybody's you, looking at you now. Yeah, and if you've not if you've not thought at least two innings ahead, yeah. then it's going to catch you. It took me. I'm, I'm going to say twenty games into spring training, it felt comfortable. It felt, yeah, it felt natural, and so it flowed. And it, and I would say. That from that point on, probably out of every hundred games that I managed, ninety-five of them I knew exactly what I was going to do to the end. There are probably five games that I'd look at Foley and I say, "You ain't got an idea what to do here. I don't know what's going on. I, I'm lost. I'm totally lost." I love it. I love it. You know, yeah. the game didn't flow at all like you thought it was going to flow. You bring in a pitcher and he can't get anybody out. You know, and you bring the next guy in who you're, you 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 cover your eyes and he strikes out the side. You know, just yeah, crazy yeah. stuff like that. You know, so. yeah. It's easy to watch a game on TV and say, "Oh man, this is what he should have done," right? But when yeah. you're in that moment. Well, there's a lot of things people don't know that that your manager and your staff knows. You, yeah. Maybe some guys aren't available out of the bullpen on a particular night. I, I went to the All Star game because we went to the World Series. I mean, yeah, it was that's know, right. Managed the World Series for the Astros. I got to manage the All Star game the following year, and I had uh, an old big pitcher for the Chicago Cubs. I think his name in a minute was my starter that night. And right before the game, we're you know taking batting practice. He's out taking batting practice. And we've got some one of the players is hitting fungos because he's having a good time, and he whacks him right on the right arm, right oh on the elbow, and he, can't, and he can't start the game. So all of a sudden, we've got this big powwow. We're scrambling to figure out who's yeah. going to start the All Star game. You know, so, because you know, as a manager, exactly. you've got to try to get everybody in there yet have a guy in case yeah. it went extra innings. Back then, you could go extra yeah. innings, and, uh, yeah, that's and, right. and and you don't want to snub anybody, and you got to make sure. You know, there's a lot of egos there, I'm sure, right? Well, you know, when you're at an all-star game, everybody deserves to be there. I oh, mean, yeah. there's not anybody that you want to slight, and you want them to have the experience to play in an all-star game because it is great fun. What an experience that must have I heard it's pretty special. Well, it, it was special, and we had we had a guy, uh, our traveling secretary, named Barry Waters uh, for Houston. I'd asked to borrow his son, Colin, and Collins was a cute kid, about 10 or 12 years old, somewhere right in that range, and I had him to be my bat boy. And so one of the best images I have of that game is they had these cool baseballs that we used for the home run contest, and they had black and, or, uh, black and gold stitching oh, on them. Oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah, and they, got a, and they got and a stamp on there, And they got right? a stamp on for the yep. All-Star game. Yep. And so I was telling, I told Colin, I said, Colin, you know, grab me a couple of those baseballs after the home run derby. I, I'd like to have some of those. And so one of my fondest memories is, 
right when the home run derby contest is over, and there's, there's a bunch of people in the stands, and everybody's hooting and hollering and mm-hmm. racing. He's out there with his shirt taken off, and he's piling baseballs. Oh, in yeah, shirt. baby. He gives me like 30 baseballs, that and he's just awesome. a little bitty kid. He brings me all these baseballs. I, you know what? You know, here's funny. I did the same thing. We, we were in, uh, this is my first big league spring training, and uh, I was with the Dodgers. Our BP balls were the all star game balls from like a year or two before. <laughs> man, I, I got like a whole box of them up in my closet, man. I grabbed them and uh, yeah. they're pretty special yeah. they're pretty cool but yeah. hey here's what I want to ask you as a manager do you think there comes a time where you can only do so much I mean football everybody spends right around the same amount of money baseball it doesn't happen like that you were you were with Milwaukee for eight years your first year you did really well yeah. and then you you went through some times where it was kind of up and down and I mean there's there's times where if you're facing a Clemens or if you're facing a Pettit or you're facing a Sandy Kofi you're just not going to win that game. You can only influence so much. Did you ever feel like, man, I can only move the needle so much with what I have? And I'm not saying that you didn't have great players. Everybody in the big leagues is probably the best player in the world. But did you ever feel yeah. that? I, I felt I felt it a lot. And, and, you know, there's a lot of people, you, you hear some people say, well, how important is a manager? And I've, I've heard the number they can affect as many as five games a year that a manager can affect mm-hmm. five one way or the other. You can lose five, you can win game over the course of the season. And, and that, there may be some truth to that. My, also, my philosophy on, on, on life and business and the business of baseball and the business of business is that leadership matters. I think in government, in business, and in baseball, leadership matters. And leadership starts on the field with your manager. So I think good managers can have an effect that go beyond five ball games on how they lead. But that being said, you can't you can't win the Kentucky Derby with a jackass. You're just not going to do it. You've yeah. got to have some thoroughbreds on your team. And when I took over Milwaukee, I, I still had Robin Young, who's a future Hall of oh, Famer. Yeah. Yeah. I had Paul Molitor, who's who was a great player, and Jimmy Gantner, who's a great player. And a couple of pitchers uh, like Chris Baggio, who's been a pitching coach in the game now, mm-hmm. that were still pretty good. So I, I took a I looked at, at our opposition and realized we didn't have any power. So I I realized that the American League had gotten to be a station to station game at that time. Nobody worried about the guy stealing bases because they were all hitting home runs. They yeah. they were doing yeah. they were following White. So I just started running at Bandon, and, and it ended up working. And we had some guys that were pretty good speed guys. Everybody in your lineup had at least 10 steals. And so that's insane. We took advantage of, well, it's insane when you put it in today's context because most pitchers and catchers and managers are aware of the running game. They did in those days, you know, they followed the lead of of Detroit and uh, Sparky Anderson Sparky had four guys that hit over 20 home runs in those days. So Was that Park Small? Was it? No, it wasn't that small. It had a small right right field porch, but not left field. It wasn't? Field. Okay. Because I've never deep. seen that they park. They just had some monsters that could hit the ball. Uh, okay. And so why steal a base and take a chance? And so Sparky came to, or had a, a deal in the paper, said uh, that our running game bordered on ridiculous. And Tim Foley, our first base, our, our bench coach, came out and said, well, of course, Sparky's got four guys going to get home runs. We have to... We have right. to steal second and third to get in scoring position sometimes. And so, yeah. and that was a true story. And Tim was right about that. It was to the point. And I kept running no matter what the score was, which broke the code in baseball in those days. Yeah. Yeah. The code was if you had a five run lead, you shut it down. Yes. Because the theory that Sparky Anderson and Ollie Owens had, 
if a grand slam can't beat you, then you shut you shut it down. And so mm-hmm. I kept running. Well, that offended people like Sparky, and that's when he came out and said the deal about the borders are ridiculous. Uh, okay. And I took my hat and hand to Sparky the next day at, at the band case, and I said, Sparky, God love you, man. You're the granddaddy of baseball, and I respect you in all regards to the game. But I cannot go home tonight if I shut my running game down. And your big boys can hit. You can hit three run homers all day long, and you come back and beat me in the eighth or ninth inning. Yeah. So I'm not going to do it. If you got to do what you got to do, okay. Yeah. Which man? If you're going to throw at my throw guys, guys yeah. and hit my guys, and I'm going to throw and hit your guys. Well, yeah. because my game is going to have to be running. And you don't tell your big boys don't hit any more home runs after you scored five. <laughs> that runs. is so true. They Nobody they, ever they, thinks they, of that. Yeah, they, they don't do that. And no. So Farky said okay, and. As it would happen a week later, after he went out of town, he lost a, a game with five-run lead in the ninth inning. He might have changed his tune a little bit. So we all, all had that happen, too. So, yeah, yeah. so when I, I went there, we, we changed things. So we got away with that. But it didn't work the next year. We stole David Cohn was traded to <clears throat> Toronto the last month of the season, and we stole the shorts. I mean, we just absolutely stole the shorts because David paid no attention to the runners. So yeah. we every, we'd get a guy on base, we'd steal second and third on the first pitch. Just and the second pitch, just like that. Wow. Well, he goes to spring training the following year, and he gets to spring training early, and he's out working on his slide steps and moves to first. And so reporters noticed it and said, what are you doing? He said, Milwaukee is not going to steal the line again this year. <laughs> so everybody adjusted, and yeah. now we were just a not a very talented team. Yeah. And so we had several of our – the Robin House retired, yeah. Paul Molitor moves, retires, Gantner retires – and we start bringing kids up from our minor league system. And we had good kids, but not frontline major league kids. Yeah. And we're in Toronto, and I'm watching their kids get called up. And they're hitting them in the second deck in BP. And our guys are trying to hit them over first baseman's head, you know. So yeah. I called Sal yeah. over, and I said, Sal, you see the difference in, in our young players and their young players? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. I see the difference, you know. So you, you're not going to win unless you have some, no matter what tricks you try to pull. Yeah. You know, you've got to have talent. Okay, so you move on. You go to Detroit, 2000 to 2002. Then you go on with the Astros, 2004 to 2007. I see a lot of film of you fighting. (laughs) And it's so different. I've never seen a manager get into a fight on a baseball field. And, you know, uh, I went through, and I want to read you some quotes that I pulled off the Internet. Okay, here's... Nobody like Garner, Cubs outfielder Willie Wilson said after being brushed back by Brewers pitcher Ricky, Ricky Bone. Is it Ricky Bonus? Ricky Bonus, yeah. In the 1994 exhibition. Hey, well, <laughs> he says that might be the dirtiest team out there. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's talk about that one. Okay? okay, okay, yeah, yeah, I want to hear it. I didn't know about that, but Wilson, they claimed Wilson was stealing signs after this happened. This oh. was in a spring training game. And I didn't know it, but Mike Matheny, who ended up coaching the show, had been called up that day. I didn't even know who Mike Matheny was. But Mm -hmm. Ricky Bonas and other pitchers thought that Wilson was stealing signs, peeking back at the catcher. So they decided he was the lead-off hitter, so they decided they were going to nail him right off the bat. Yeah, got to hit him. Got to hit him right off the bat. I didn't know about it. So all of a sudden, they nail him, and he starts to go out towards the uh, the pitcher's mound, and Mike Matheny grabs him and puts his foot right on his neck. And so I'm running on As a rookie? Field. Yeah. yeah oh, that's impressive. I didn't even know who he was. And I said, yeah. I, I asked my third base coach, I said, who is that catcher? And he said, well, that's Matheny. I said, he's going to make our team. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. He did. He ended up making our team. But that's awesome. I didn't know about it, but I didn't. 
Okay, okay, so here's the next one. All right. So after the Sox Brewers game on July 25th, 1993, speaking about the White Sox announcers Ken Harrelson and Tom Pachora, yeah. you said if Hawk and Wimpy think they're hitting and that we're hitting their guys, I'm available. And he says, Garner said afterwards, those two guys should know better. They played ball, but obviously they are two <laughs> they are two idiots. My challenge is for them to come down here and I'll fight them now. <laughs> and so, do you remember that? I do. I exactly and, and, remember it. And this, what's funny about that one is... Oh, it's hilarious. Right, uh, the big hurt. Uh, Frank Thomas. Frank Thomas yeah. is killing us. Just killing yeah. us. So, <clears throat> we're in a ball game. It's a close ball game. And the thing that I want to do about big hurt is I want to pitch him inside. Yes. In those days, Big Hurt stood right on the plate, and you throw it six inches outside, he was killing oh, it. He hit it yeah. a million miles. Yeah. And I wanted to pitch him inside. So Dave Nelson is our, is our catcher. He's a rookie catcher. And the first pitch he sets up on the outside part of the plate, whoa, time. I, I run on the field yelling time, and I go out on the mound. I said, whoa, guys, were you going to pitch him away? And they said, yeah. I said, well, no, remember the report. Inside, if you walk him, it's okay with me. You mm-hmm. can pitch him inside, but we're going to pound the inside part of the plate. Yep. Well, there's two guys on base, I think, or, or at least one. and uh, So we wind up, and they hit him. Yeah. So now it's a close ball game. Do not want to hit him. I want to pitch him inside. Yeah. But if we walked him or hit him, it didn't really matter. But I did not order to hit. Yeah. So Harrelson or Wimpy, one of them, says, <laughs> says – well, that was obvious. Garner went out and told him to hit him. Oh, and, said, and, and they actually said, we need to pick our spot and nail one of our guys later. And so what made Doesn't me mad make when I heard that yeah. is I knew that Hawk knew better. Wimpy, uh, yeah, Pachoric should have known better. They called him Wimpy anyway. So oh, I didn't know I that. Called, I didn't, that's I called, hilarious. I called up, I called up to, the, to the radio booth, and true to his name, Wimpy answers it. I said, are you guys up there trying to incite a right? You know darn well I didn't tell them to hit him. You knew at that situation. Was this during the game or after it. the game? This is after the game, right? Okay. okay. Right when the press told me about it. And, yeah. and Wimpy says, I didn't say it. Hawk oh, said it. Wow. So, right under so the bus. He throws him right under the bus. Yeah. Puts him down and say, okay, Wimpy, then you get a hawk on the line. And so Hawk wants to meet me out in some godforsaken place and uh, – in Chicago, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'll get shot. So I said, no, right. we'll meet on the field. And so yeah, yeah. I was mad. But, and I said, Hawk, you know better. And he said, yeah, I do, but you know it's, it's radio. And I said, that makes it even worse. Yeah, you have yeah. a responsibility so that your your fans, our fans, your fans, everybody knows that's not what I told yeah. those guys. And so that's that was the I back agree. story on that. Okay, that's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. On, on 722.95, I think it's – Ozzy Guillen sliding into third base. He's, he gets picked off of second base, breaks to third. They throw to Jeff Cirillo. Was it yeah. Jeff Cirillo playing uh, third? One, Kevin Seitzer. Kevin Seitzer. Okay. So Kevin, it's kind of a throw that pulls him off. He goes back, and I guess he spikes. I guess his spikes hit Guillen. Guillen pushes him. He turns around. He's like, what's going on? Next thing you know, I see you running, and who is it? Uh, Bevington. Terry Bevington yeah. comes in. And all of a sudden, you guys start going at it. I well, mean, there's a backstory to that too. Okay, okay. So, so go back to, uh, several games prior to that, uh-huh. and they've got Ron Dibble in the lineup, and oh, we've yeah. got Pat Listash, who was a former Rookie of the Year playing. Yeah, and I Pat Listash is our leadoff guy, and he's a he's a feisty player and hits the ball good, and he steals bases. And so, uh, Bevington calls down the bullpen. We're 
we're, we're leading the game at, at this point, I think. Bevington calls down the bullpen. He says, Dibble, get ready and hit the first guy in the head when you come in. That's a quote. Now, how do I know that? Yeah. The bat boy on our team happens to be the brother of the bat boy on the Chicago teams. In those days, the, you know, the home team would su- supply the uh, bat boys. So the bat boy yeah. t- happens to be standing beside the phone, the White Sox phone, when he hears it, and he tells that bat boy, he said, hey, told Dibble to hit him in the head, and he did. He hit past this ass in the head. Oh, wow. And so now the bat boy tells one of our players that. So oh, now boy. the word is out that Dibble came in and was ordered by Bevington to nail our guy in the head. Not he threw head. hard, too, right? Oh, Dibble, oh, Dibble threw Dibble hard. real hard. Dibble was in the upper 90s. Yeah, it was. Days, really hard. And he could could have really caused some damage. True. So I was looking for a moment to get Bevington. I was just looking for that, that one uh-huh. time. Cause, and my players are looking at me, too. Are we going to know? Are we going to nail yeah. somebody? Yeah, hundred well, percent. I've got a bunch of players that throw about eighty-five miles an hour. If they're going to hit somebody. I'm going to hurt them. So we're not. We got to figure out another way to do some damage. And yeah. So, so <clears throat> when that moment happens, Kevin Seitzer was kind of aware of what was going on. So he kind of he might have done that on purpose. So the minute we go over there, I and I saw Babington coming. I was going to go after Babington. So I actually took a swing at Babington, and somebody blocked blocked me before I got to it. But I got a little. Fistful hair, but yeah, yeah, tore, tore the hair out. But, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, I was, I was good. laughing when but, I watched that video. I was laughing. Everybody well, should YouTube that video. That that that's well. But good. The, the point on that is, and here it go back. It, when I took over Milwaukee, we had a decent team, and after that, Chicago was the big bully. The yeah. White Sox were the big bullies. We they they gave us no time of day, and we we were a, a young upstart team with not very many people. So. I felt like I had to show fire and vigor. The only way we were going to win ball games is you had to show a fighting attitude. If you just lay back and try to play and, and take an uppity attitude, you're going to get nowhere because we're going to get thumped. So we had to build a scrappy, we're going to fight you to the end of the day. Yeah. You may you may, you may may take us down, but you're going to hurt. We're going to, we're going to give you a little bit of pain. So that's what I tried to do. So. So some of this was, was showmanship. Mm-hmm. Some of it I got ticked off. Yeah. <laughs> and I did get ticked off at Bevington on that one. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so last one. You go to uh, you go to Detroit. In April 2000, uh, Sox pitcher Jim Parquet hits Dean Palmer in an ugly bench-clearing brawl that resulted in a major league record 16 suspensions and $82,000 in fines. Uh, Ron, Ron Shula, the Sox general manager at the time, accuses Garner of engaging quote-unquote, engaging Sox players <laughs> during the brawl. And and Garner was once again forced to deny his team had ignited a fight, saying, I was out there trying to make peace. I was in that one. I, I was trying to make peace, but we had some players that were pretty well ticked off. Is that the one where, uh, who was the redhead guy from Detroit? He came, he comes off the field, his face is full of blood, his jersey's ripped open. He, he was crazy, strong we, as an ox. I forget his name. We called him White. What, uh, uh, yes. Um, probably was. Yeah, it was him. I know it was him, but uh, oh my gosh, that I remember that brawl, man. That that was out of control. Yeah, that's hilarious. So I'm, I'm helping out this team. I said, hey guys, what do you want to know from Phil? And so these guys were all Texas kids. They had an Astros question. You get hired by the Astros after the All-Star break. You guys are 44 and 44 at the All-Star break. Cardinals are leading the division, I believe. A month into your tenure, the Astros fell to four games under 500. Then something happened. The Astros jumped six teams to nab the final playoff spot, going 36-10 and in their final 46 to win the wild card. 
uh, on the final day of the season. What happened? Great question, and, I, and to tell you the truth, I don't know because because when I took over the team, going back to an earlier question about some guys are really, really adept at, at playing in that key situation. Mm-hmm. The reason I got the job is the Astros pitching staff had faltered something terrible, and they thought they were going to be better. They had uh, a, a guy named Dotel that was a setup guy, and Dotel had um, been he'd been the best in baseball as a setup the eighth inning. Oh, yeah, I remember. The Astros, awesome. mm-hmm. And they had Billy Wagner as their closer, and so the Astros got a crossways with Billy Wagner and let him go because they thought Dotel could, could close. Well, it turned out Dotel could not close, or he did not close that year, that half season. So they kind of brought me in. I immediately made Lidge as the, as the closer, and then we made a trade for, for uh, a guy named uh, Danny Wheeler, and then we brought up Chad Qualls. Well, it took it a little while before those – Pitchers kind of lined up pretty well, and they started lining up. But we also we weren't hitting like we did. We had, you know, Biggio Bagwell, and we weren't doing what we thought we were going to do. So mm-hmm. we go. Uh, Jerry Hunsinger, who's a general manager, is from Philadelphia, and he makes the road trip into Philadelphia. We have lunch. Andy Pettit has a bad elbow. He needs surgery, and he's throwing eighty miles an hour. God bless him. He's trying every way in the world to win mm-hmm. a ball game. Doing a great job getting five innings, but he's in pain. And so we decided that day, he needs to have surgery. Let's go ahead and, and make the call. And I told Jerry at the time, I said, Jerry, you probably ought to fire me because I thought this ball club was going to be better than, than we are. We're not doing the things I thought we would do. So if it's me, if you, don't, if you want to fire me, I'm good with all that. If you want to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll just take credit for not being able to turn the team around. And, and Jerry thought about it for a minute. I said, I, if it were my money, if I owned the team, I'd probably blow it up. I'd trade all these big money guys I'd, and start from scratch because it's just not working. Which is, which is reasonable, right? I mean, those guys at the time, if you traded a Clemens, you traded a, a Beltran to a, to a front-running team, you could basically stock your minor league up. I think that was pretty good advice at the time. If, if, if I was in that situation, I'd probably say the same thing. Well, thank goodness Jerry didn't do that. He, he Jerry, who I think is a, was a terrific general manager. He thought about it for a few few minutes. He didn't say, no, no, no. He, did, he, he was really quiet for a few minutes. And he said, no, no, I promised these guys I'd do everything I could to help them win. And so we're not going to break it up. We're going we're gonna to stick with the plan. And that night, as we had Clemens is pitching, he were down in the game, and it's, I don't know, fifth or sixth inning, somewhere like that. Base is loaded, and the count goes to three and one on him, on Clemens. And dumb me puts a take sign on. Well, he never looks down to see the take sign. And he swings away and hits a bullet down the right field line for a double, clears the bases, and we go on a tear. I mean, that's – so what happened? Clemens happened. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I think. You know, Clemens happened. So it was it was unbelievable. And then, uh, and then all of a sudden, guys started hitting, guys started pitching, and we got – actually, another good story – Roy Oswald had been accused by Chicago uh, Cubs catcher of throwing at one of their players. It was all on the Chicago uh, papers that when we went into Chicago, they were going to nail Roy Oswald. They were going to hit him and all that kind of stuff. We were prepared for that. And so we go into Chicago. Roy's pitching. Roy pitching well. First at bat, they hit him right in the thigh with a 92-mile-an-hour fastball. Getting good. Yeah. Okay, conversation's over. Roy goes back out. Doesn't retaliate or anything else. They bring in Mercer who's throwing about 96 in those days, left-hander, 
and Bagwell at the plate, and he throws it at Bagwell's head not once but twice. Oof. And so, see, the conversation was over, and then they escalated it. Yeah. And we had traded for Danny Weaker that day. I hadn't even met him yet. He got there during the game and gone to the bullpen. Uh-huh. So we we needed him, and so I call it. We get ahead. We're ahead one run. And so I call in Danny Wheeler. <laughs> Don't even know him. Uh-huh. I said, Danny, I'm Phil Garner. It's nice to meet you. Get two quick outs and then hit the next guy right in the back. <laughs> and so he throws two balls, gets two outs, and it's Carlos Lee, or not Carlos Lee, it's Big Lee. He's six foot six or something. Oh, oh first yeah, yeah, I remember him. Big, Big Lee. Uh-huh. And, uh, and he nails him right in the back. Uh, it was perfect. And then throws it. another pitch and gets us out of the ballgame. And that made Danny Wheeler's career. He'd been a, you know, so-so, but I mean, I tell you, I think it made Danny. But but it was the right thing to do. Yeah. You know, you got to yeah. do those kind of things. Because yeah. the Cubs were out of line. They got their yeah. little piece of revenge to let it go. But when you're firing at Bagwell's head, nah, that's not going to happen. No. We're not, not going to No, that that's happen, the so. big boy, yeah. I couldn't imagine being down that many games and jumping over that many teams and sustaining – a you know a streak for that long you must have been whistling on the way to work i mean it, it must oh. have been the most exciting time to i mean you just can't wait to get there can't wait to get there. you're absolutely right and every night you knew something exciting was going yeah on. yeah had, it's crazy it right? all it all came together our pitchers started pitching very well qual and it got if, if we got to the fifth inning it was a lockdown our, our, our pitching staff yeah. was they just Danny Wheeler just emerged. He came in in the fifth or sixth inning, and then Qualls had the seventh or mm-hmm. eighth inning, and then Lidge had the ninth, and they called him lights out Lidge because oh, yeah. he just was just nasty. Yeah. And so, so once the pitching staff got in line, and this this kind of helped me with one of my philosophies. I think that team chemistry is built with the pitching staff because hmm. once your team realizes that the pitchers from the fifth inning on don't give up any runs, you realize you're in a ball game. You're in every ball game because you can come back. You can, you can come back. Yeah, can, yeah, yeah. Score yeah. some runs. You can win. But what happens when you get into that bullpen? A lot of times you'll say, "Let's get into the bullpen in the fifth or sixth inning." Yeah, that's what everybody that's says. That's when yeah. you put the game out, yeah. out of touch. Well, it didn't happen with with the really good teams. They shut you down, and so they give True. you a chance to get back. And so that our our Pitching staff just got on fire, and then, it's incredible. Well, it's incredible I've got to give works. some kudos to a couple of players because what happens in some of this? We had Brad Osmus, who, who I love mm-hmm. to, to this day, and he's he's a fabulous catcher, and, a, and he, he's a terrific manager, and he's a great baseball student. But I had a guy, a left-handed hitter, that Michael. I got to remember his name in a minute. He was coming off the bench, and he was hot as all get off. Out of, the, out of the bench, mm-hmm. and he was hitting home runs and everything else. And so what I started doing, if we were down in the ball game, I would pitch hit this guy if it, there were guys on base, and I did it for Osmus. And the first time I did it, I, I could see the hurt in Osmus's eyes when I took him out. He's looking at me. First off, he wanted to kill me. <laughs> you know, he wasn't beating me up. But I can also see the professional hurt. Yeah. But he, to his credit, he never said a word about it, and it never became a, a breakdown in the system, and you know this this guy was just doing the job, and yeah. you couldn't fault me for doing it, other than the fact that I was throwing Brad a little bit on the bus. It, it showed that I had no confidence in him as a hitter again in those certain situations, and uh, and and I didn't. But Brad accepted it very professionally, and I'm forever grateful for him on on that because all other aspects of the game, I think he's terrific. And, yeah. You know things like so I started managing a little bit crazy too. You know. You, if I had a chance in that in, in a situation in the sixth inning and we had men in scoring position, I'd pinch hit. And normally you wouldn't go that soon because you're mm-hmm. going to run out of players. Mm-hmm. 
But I kept thinking, it doesn't matter if I've got two players left in the, in the ninth inning and we get loose. I, that doesn't do me any good if I got them on the bench. So guys were doing their job. Uh, the guys were, you know, Jose Vizcaino was bringing yeah. him in the game, and he was he was coming up with some great hits and played super, you know. I played with him. He's traditionally a glove guy, right? Yeah, I mean, he was a glove guy, but boy, he got he got on fire offensively and left-handed hitting. He was, and our, our shortstop uh, Adam Everett broke his wrist, and so uh-huh. he ended up having to play every day for the last month, and he was terrific. A lot of people ask me about that team because we had Pettit, we had Clemens making all kinds of money, Roy Oswald making all kinds of money, uh, Berkman, Biggio, Bagwell making all kinds of money. Say, was it hard to manage all those big old big names, big prima donnas? I said, oh, no, no, there were no prima donnas on that deal. There were no prima donnas. And every man to a man wanted the next guy to do it. But they also did their job. They were very professional. They wanted to get their job done. If they didn't get their job, they were looking for somebody else to, to pitch in and help out. And so there was no selfishness, except that when that guy was in scoring position, that guy wanted to drive him in. It's my job to drive him yeah, in. You know, yeah. that, that, that was what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Clemens, he was going to get you out. He was going to get you the sixth. He was going to get you the seventh end of the ball game, no matter what. And he did in every instance for me for two years, except once in an umpire blow call. That's the only reason he could get through six innings. Yeah. Those guys were amazing. Remarkable. Yeah, it makes your job a lot easier. And going back to Osmus, he's our manager now with the Angels. And, you know, I read a, I read a good quote. He was talking about you. He said he was very good at, at talking to me and explaining what his thought process was. He was very good at always allowing me to ask questions without becoming defensive. Catchers and, and managers always have a different kind of relationship. It seems you guys spend a lot of time together. You know, it's nice as a player to be able to say, hey, look, you know, what were you thinking in this process? And, what, and it seems like he was pretty curious about certain things and why you made certain moves. But it's, it's got to be nice that he respected the fact, even though you were taking him out in certain situations, and, and I'm sure it was, hey, you thought he was a great player, but at the time when someone else is hot, I mean, you've, you've got to get him in there. But it, it's got to be nice for you to hear something like that where he goes, yeah, it's business. And now he sits in your shoes, and he's, he's going to have to make those decisions that you made. And, and sometimes those are very difficult because you, it, it's a business decision, but you also care about the person as a person, yeah. right? And it's hard to – it's hard. You've got to do what's best for the team at that point, not what's best for the individual. Exactly. That's the biggest phrase that you can uh, tell any – person in any managerial situation, whether it's people, whether it's baseball, no matter what it is, you really have a higher goal and you have to have your players understand that. They have to understand it. And Brad did, I think. And so I, I listen, I think the world of him, as a matter of fact, he's one of the most, my, one of my favorite players ever to have, mm-hmm. but it didn't stop me. And I respected him greatly, but it didn't stop me from doing what I thought was the thing to do to help the team win. Now there are some there are some things that, there's some gray areas you get into when you're going to do that. Do you uh, do you pinch hit for anybody? Well, maybe you don't because you might uh, maybe one player uh, he may be in a terrible slump, but he may be coming out of it. You don't know. It could yeah. be a Bagwell that could come out of his slump. Law of averages, he is right. Yeah, so he's going to come out of it. So there's there's certain things that you have to do. But Brad was easy to let run a ball club. As a matter of fact, I used to get advanced scouting reports, and Brad would be the first guy in my office when I would get him. He said, can I see the report? So he was going on. So I used to run the pitchers and catchers meetings, and then very shortly after that I realized, well, Brad's my catcher, and he does as good a job as anybody running the meetings. So he ran the meetings, the pitchers and catchers meetings. He said, okay, this is what the report is. This is what we're going to do. So 
I let Brad do it because he was good at it. And That's he great. had a great feel for it. And I've always felt like a manager should sit above the game and, and try to stay away from it because you can get emotional during the game. So if you can stay above it a little bit, let your players do what they do. Mm-hmm. I think this separates some people from others. Some guys like to micromanage, and I really don't like to micromanage because I think the this report may be called for a fastball in on a guy, and Brad Osmus is sitting around on play. He can see if this guy's cheating on a fastball yeah, in yeah. or not. And if he wants to go away, I'm going to tip my hat to him because I know he's thinking. He's paying attention. He's watching. Right, right. If we normally have a shortstop second baseman fading one way or the other mm-hmm. and you start to see him move, okay, because they're watching what the guy's doing with the bat. Maybe he's got a sore wrist and he can't turn on it like he mm-hmm. normally does, and they can see that. They can see that he's not going to – pull the ball like he would normally do it. So you let those players do their thing. And the same thing with pitchers. You let this guy may not have his best slider tonight. He's going to go with a different pitch when we normally say we need to throw this guy a certain way. So you let them do what they want to do. And I think Brad had a great feel for the game. There's no question in my mind that Brad's offensive numbers won't show up in the top of the category. But the reason we won one of the major reasons because of the way he handled the pitching staff and the way he was. That's great. You finish managing. It's time to retire. What's been the most difficult adjustment for you personally? Well, I, I was lucky because I got to play to the point where I knew I couldn't play. I think it's much more difficult for players who feel like they've been yeah. taken out of the game before their time is up. I, I think that's that's mm-hmm. more difficult. So I had a long time to prepare. I had a long time to save. I made good money, mm-hmm. and I saved my money, and I invested my money. So yep. I didn't have to worry about the next job. I had planned well for that, and fortunately my wife was on board with all that. So we had these things going for us. So the it, it wasn't a tough adjustment for me other than the fact I missed the competition. Yeah. I think what's key to all of us is we really enjoy the competition. Yeah, you know, they, I, I try to get it through golf, and and I enjoy yeah. playing for two dollars. Sure, mean, sure. We don't we don't play for hundreds. We play for two dollars. That two dollars, a couple of us will die for that two dollars. You, you're <laughs> yeah. one of those guys. You know yeah. that part. Yeah. But yeah. so you try to get that competition. The other side is when you get old, you just realize you can't do it anymore. So, yeah. So yeah. that's a. You know, you just have to accept that. Most people don't remember Willie Mays, but I remember Willie trying mm-hmm. to play his last year with the Mets, and he stumbled around in the outfield. Yeah. And that's, unfortunately, my last memory of sure. Willie Mays. He mm-hmm. was one of, perhaps the greatest ball player of all time. Many people think he was. that saw him on a daily basis and saw both Babe Ruth and Mickey Mantle and all of them. Many people say he was the greatest ever. But my memory of him is falling down two times trying to catch, uh, you know, fly balls, running uh-huh. and catching fly balls. Yeah. And so I never wanted to be that kind of guy. And, sure, uh, sure, but, I get uh, it. Yeah, so, but I think what, uh, the other side of the fact is, is I realized too early on that, you know, if you're very fortunate and your baseball career gets to run as a player till 40, you know, you've still got half your life to live. Sure, yeah. And you've got to do other things. So I planned uh, energetic, and I like to do, I have a lot of interest, and so I had planned to pursue some of those other interests. So I was really fortunate to be able to coach and manage. And so once I got into that, some of the things I planned business-wise got put on hold. Sure. And so I was able to continue that for for another 20 years. And so uh, Okay. So let's, let me ask you this. So if you get a call tomorrow and they're like, hey, look, we need you. Can, can you come manage? Can you come manage? It's it's a big league team. It's a big league team, and they want you. They want you back. They want you to manage. Uh, they say, look, you know, we're 
we got a bunch of young guys and we need uh, we need some leadership. We, we want you to come out and manage. What's your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I haven't thought about it. I, I, my thought would be uh, I'd have to think about it. and uh, Go to the boss and ask well, Carolyn? Yeah, I'd probably I'd ask Carolyn. I know what that answer is going to be. No, we're not going to do that. So I probably would not. And uh-huh. I, I, the reason is I'll be 70 here in a couple of days. I've got grandkids that are, are from 15 down to 5, yep. and several of them are, are locked in their sports. And so mm-hmm. our weekends are spent, and some of our weeknights are spent seeing them, which yeah. I didn't get to see my kids. I, mm-hmm. I, all of my career, you know, I didn't get to see them through the summer play their sports. And so um, I've kind of changed into that, so I don't want to miss my grandkids. So probably not. It, it's probably it's passed me by. It's, there's a lot of good people out there that yeah. don't need me. So okay. uh, uh, although it feels good to say we need you, I, yeah, it'd really be nice. Good, yeah, I haven't heard that in a long yeah, time. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, <laughs> so speaking of speaking of Carol, you and Carol live in the same community as me, and, and you're involved in so many committees and you do so much for our community here in the Woodlands, Texas. I know that you're involved with uh, Texas Children's, and you want to speak a little bit about that and let you know let the, well, the audience. Well, yeah, know. I would because I actually. I've lent some of my time, but my wife does most. She's all the work. I just I tell her that I'm eye candy for her when she does all these charitable deals. <laughs> she's, she's been lucky. Her chairman of the board on several different charities, and mm-hmm. we've we've uh, done a lot of stuff for Texas Children's for the last thirty years. Uh, these girls over in Kingwood started out doing a little luncheon where they found out that there was a lot of cancer drugs for out there going thirty years back, but they did they were not had, didn't have any tests to use among kids. And so they had one of the mothers to lose a, ch- a child to cancer. And so these girls got involved. And over the years, they found out one of the first thing they did, they, uh, the kids that are in the on the sixth floor, they call it, the Texas Children's, the thing they were most afraid of, not losing their hair, not the chemotherapy and getting sick, what they were most afraid of was getting their finger pricked 10 to 20 times a day. And that's, they all got scared of that. Yeah. And so, you know, a little six-year-old kid getting his finger pricked all those kind of days, you know, because painful. Yeah. So they raised money, which was a couple thousand dollars, to buy a machine so that they could monitor their blood without having pricked but one time. And so that has worked over the years. They've given away now upwards of $10 million, I think, over, over these years to uh, Texas Children's. And one of the interesting things about one form of cancer I know about when they started, kid that had kids that had leukemia, twenty percent of them survived, eighty percent passed. Today, eighty percent survive, twenty percent uh, don't make it, and there will they will get down to where they'll eliminate that on a lot of cancers. Now they flip that narrative, and so it's oh, pretty cool. That's Texas amazing. Is doing that. I'll tell you one other quick story. We got a call from a, a couple in, uh, in she would she's a doctor, and they lived in London. And she was actually in Australia because she was doing research on AIDS. And he was in London, and they have a child, a uh, three-year-old kid, that has 150 to 200 seizures a day. And they were trying to, there was only one doctor in the world that could do this procedure that could possibly help him. And they wanted to know if we could help. And that doctor is at Texas Children's. Oh, wow. And so the kid came over. We got him in to see the, the kid. They take a probe and go about four inches down into this kid's head, and they it's very precise, and they do some electronic uh, zapping, if you will, onto this area. And so far, this has been uh, about two months now, and the kid hasn't had seizures. And so it's remarkable. But this is what Texas Children's does. So 
I, you know, I'd love for everybody to be involved with Texas Children's, yeah. but there's a lot of charities that are good, and it makes your community better. If people can get involved, there's always, you know, 10% of the people are going to do 100% of the work, and uh, mm-hmm. the other people are going to slack. But if you can, if you're not into organization and helping, you can give a little money. If it's five dollars, it it can go to pick your pick what it is you like and do it because it makes your community better when people are involved. And we have a wonderful community here. And it's because all kinds of people that are bigger and greater than us yeah. do a yeah. lot of things. Yeah. Listen, Phil, I really appreciate it. Uh, what a great career, personally. You know, I love being around you. You're a great guy, and I just love you as a person, and, and I just appreciate you being on the show. Well, thanks. This, this is a lot of fun. I'm glad to be the first one uh, on the show. I That's hope right. it goes well. You're my so guinea good pig. Luck to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Phil. I'd like to thank my guest, Phil Garner. He was awesome. Spent a lot of time with me. I really appreciate that. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please subscribe. We're available on your favorite directories, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, and iHeart. You can find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V.com, and at Believe Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.